This is a call to all current and aspiring entrepreneurs. How you market your business can be the difference between whether or not you succeed online. But don't worry, we're here to help with current strategies, tips, and tricks that you can apply to your online business or business idea. This is the EMJ Podcast with your host, Matt Hepburn. Hey there, Breakthrough Nation. Today, we're going to drop value around SEO and organic search. Our guest today is Eli Schwartz, an SEO expert, author, and consultant who provides global SEO strategies that dramatically increase organic visibility at scale. I'd pay attention to this one. It's going to get hot. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Matt. Uh, absolutely. It's an absolute pleasure. Your book is a absolute joy. I uh, had a pleasure reading it twice. The first time I kind of skimmed through it and went, oh, I have that experience. And the second time I went, let me go into this in a little bit more detail and just uh, look through it uh, you know, very much. Uh, and I, I found a lot of gems in there. I found a lot of gems and um, found a lot of uh, alignment um, with kind of my working experience of where I've gone in the enterprise world. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I was I was fascinated. There are a lot of different terms and the way you've done SEO that um, – I have not done SEO, uh, and um, one of the things uh, I would lead in with uh, as a question for you is one of the things you've really talked about is the customer data that you get from um, the business owners really need to get to get a really good understanding as to the the intent of what the customers are looking for, and um, this can totally shape and change the paradigm of where the business is focused um, for Listeners, if you could go into a little bit about this and ex explain the importance and, and uh, how they might go about doing that, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. And and thank you for reading the book. Thank you for having me here. Absolutely. I got to say that if I would have known so many people were going to read the book, I would have written it differently. And mm -hmm. I would have incorporated like more viewpoints in the book. Mm -hmm. I had right. people like proofread it. But I didn't really like solicit any feedback of like, hey, you want to be interviewed for the book? Because I, I really didn't think I was writing a book that so many people would read. So I'm I'm so grateful that it resonated with people. Absolutely. And inspired me to probably write another one. But that that's to be determined. So as far as your question, I'd say it's important to really split the intent behind understanding customer data and the tactics behind understanding customer data. So the intent behind understanding customer data. I think that a lot of marketers, too many marketers, and especially people within SEO roles, and I don't think people in SEO should necessarily be in marketing, but they are. And But I, I think there's an especially big problem when it comes to SEO is that they don't understand the customer because they're too focused on SEO data. They're too focused on keywords. They're too focused on analytics. And they're not putting their customer hat on when they're doing their SEO, when they're doing their marketing. So yesterday I had a conversation with the company and they were like, well, what kind of keywords should we write? And what are our blog posts should be? And I said, do people even buy your product from search? Do you know what they need? And those, that's the intent behind understanding the customer mm -hmm. data. You have to create content, not just key content for keywords, but content that resonates with where your potential buyer is in your buyer's funnel to bring them to that next stage. Depending on what the product is, if it's a $100,000 SaaS software, they're probably not at the bottom of the funnel. 
If it's a $10 widget for your phone, they're probably at the bottom of the funnel. So really, you have to understand that where the customer is in your funnel. Now, you can you know, put your finger in the air and try to guess at it. But my tactic, and this is the, the tactic behind the intent, is to really understand the customer. So gr- gather that customer data. So I think the easiest thing to do is to talk to your customer, to really say, hey, um, you know, and this is a great one. I, I've talked to females that worked in male-oriented businesses and, and males that worked in female-oriented businesses, and they look at data and they you know, incorporate what their managers had said to them, incorporate what the company says to them. I'm like, have you actually talked to your customer? Do you know how your customer is going to look for this kind of thing? So that's what I mean in my book when I talk about survey data and talking to customers. Mm-hmm. Talk to them, ask them, do you use the internet to find this kind of thing? And if you use the internet to find this kind of thing, is it, are you using social media and just like scrolling for recommendations? Are you clicking on ads? Are you uh, Googling or binging or whatever search engine you're using and then educating yourself and then deciding to go directly to the website or it is, but really to understand that process. And I, I think that's what's missing too often is that, the person that is doing this marketing and building the marketing doesn't really understand the customer because they have not tried to sit in their shoes. And one way of doing that is to talk to the customer. And there's really, you can do, you know, person on the street interviews and talk to an actual customer where you could do a survey. And when you do a survey, the intent behind the survey is not to do this super scientific sample size survey. It's really, if you understand the concept behind sample size, it's so you you get rid of any margin of error and you reduce your margin of error. However, when you're creating a product, your margin of error should be really large to begin with. So you're creating a product that resonates with all Gen Z. So you want to talk to enough Gen Z that you know six out of ten Gen Z said the same thing. It doesn't really matter whether you know it should have been seven out of ten or five out of ten. Actually, five out of ten would be 50-50. But yeah, it, you get what I'm saying. Like it really has absolutely, to be, absolutely. You have to get enough information. Like, oh, this is good. Now I understand how to create my content. It's not like I need to know the exact word, and I really need to forecast this so I my prediction is perfect. And I know who's going to become president next year. Totally doesn't that that's not necessary. So a survey could really be a ten question survey, which you ask a bunch of people to answer, and if they all sort of answer the same thing, that's good enough. You didn't need to like scale that up to like a proper sample size. If they answer different things, then maybe there isn't a market there. Everyone's answering something else. Maybe you do have to scale that up and get to appropriate sample size. But really, like what I have found with these kinds of things is you're going to hear the same thing over and over if there's a market there. Mm -hmm. So for businesses that are kind of struggling or they're just coming online, um, maybe they don't have a large customer base. You uh, talked about different ways that uh, business could businesses could actually do a survey. Uh, could you tell the listeners a little bit about that? That'd be be fantastic. So you don't need to do an actual survey. So like, it, and the easiest, freest survey would be to use Google Forms. Just ask a bunch of questions. Mm-hmm. There are there is like a little bit of methodology to writing a survey, so you get useful answers. I'd say like not everyone knows how to do that. I happen to spend seven years in a survey company, so I know how to do that. You know, the the, the basic thing is. When you ask the question, you want to make sure the answer you get is indicative and you know what it is. So like big mistake people will make with surveys is they'll ask a double-barreled question. So like, do you like when it's sunny and warm outside and someone answers yes, you're like, uh, was that sunny or is that warm? Because yes, double-barreled. So like avoid that. Um, the, the next thing to really avoid is just to ask useless questions over and over. Like I find that people ask, uh, you know, what's your gender? 
if it really doesn't matter for the product, then don't ask that gender. So like, mm-hmm. basically, you don't want to ask useless questions. But then again, I don't know that you necessarily need to do a survey. If you can go into like a party and, you know, go to a bar and just like ask 10 people that are in your potential market and you get data. Really, the important point is, is like, are you gathering data or are you just guessing? You know, and keyword research is just guessing, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. So, so for the companies that are not willing to go into physically go into a bar and do that, would you put paid behind it to, um, but then you're using keywords to actually target those specific uh, users, but would you put paid behind it in a specific way, maybe going very broad? So I actually always recommend that businesses spend as much money on paid as possible before they ever do SEO. And the reason is, is because paid helps you quickly determine product market fit, mm-hmm. quickly helps you determine your messaging, quickly helps you determine your ad copy. So if you do SEO and you again, you're just guessing, you're like, this is what my market wants. This is what resonates with my market. And you know, and I know, and everyone doing SEO knows it takes a long time for this to happen. Your pages have to get built and then indexed and then, you know, ranking and then traffic needs to come in before you can really make a judgment call. It takes many months. I've seen it take two years. I've seen it take three months. Really, really depends, right? We're not talking about, you know, launch a single blog post and see where it goes. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about launching a product and really seeing if people search for this kind of thing. So if you do that with SEO and you're wrong, so you spend all this time and you're wrong. Or if you're wrong, you actually won't get any traffic. So you're sitting out there waiting for results. And the fact that you haven't gotten traffic is actually the answer that you don't have product market fit or you don't search market fit. But you're like, well, I'm not indexed. I'm not ranking well enough. So I'm still waiting. So you continue to waste time. Whereas if you do this with paid, you instantly, almost instantly know, do people look for this kind of thing? Does this ad copy resonate? If they land on this landing page, are they willing to pay this price? Do they sign up? Do they churn? You know, you get that full picture really quickly. Right. Like within a month, you'll know is the pricing right? Do people churn? Are the problems with the offering? Do they complain to customer service? Like you get all that with SEO, it just takes too long. So I look at at paid and any kind of paid. So like social paid too is just a great way to learn about your customer and a great way to build your offering that you can then scale into search. And the best thing about paid and you know search definitely paid search is it's the same person. It's just one's higher on the page, one's lower on the page. That person doing that search and clicking your paid ad could also click organic. So it's not like, well, I, I the persona that clicks paid is not going to translate into the organic persona. No, they're the same. So if you figure out what you know how to nail product market fit, how to really nail that search market and paid, you can nail it in organic. If it's not there, you'll find out quickly it's not there and paid. No, that's 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 awesome. So um, I'm actually going to move on to your Blue Ocean SEO, which uh, which I was really uh, was amazing in the book. And and uh, if you could kind of explain to uh, the listeners what product led SEO is and what the Blue Ocean SEO is, and I think their their question is going to be once we get further down that funnel is I've already got a website, I've already got content. How do I switch? How do I pivot to what this is? Right. Um, so that's kind of the, the, where it's going to go, but I'm going to, I'm going to let you lead with the solution of product led SEO. I love the example in the book that you gave of the, um, of the medical clinic that was, was pivoting based upon, um, yeah. So essentially what product led SEO is and how it differentiates from the way everyone typically does SEO 
is that product-led SEO is you're building something, a tangible something for the search user. Where most people do SEO, and I touched on this earlier, is they use keyword research to build a content. They're not building, they say they're building content for the user, but they're building the content because there's a keyword there. And that's their mm-hmm. SEO. A couple of problems with that. The biggest problem with that is that anybody with the same access to the keyword research, HRF, SEMrush, it costs you know $120 a month, a couple hundred dollars a month, depending on what you pay. Anyone can afford that. Most people can afford that. But then there's so many free keyword research tools. So if you're using Google Trends, that's free. Google Keyword Planner, that's free. So now anybody with access to the same research can build the exact same content. And by the way, AI content is the same thing. By lowering the cost barrier, everyone now has the same thing. So with your SEO strategy is I use keyword research. I'm in the widget space and I'm going to build a bunch of content about widgets and I'm going to be better because I'm going to have more content or I'm going to be better because I'm going to have better pictures or I'm going to be better because I really know how to build backlinks. That is not a strategy. That's just tactics mm-hmm. in a vacuum. The second problem that I've seen with this, and I've been doing SEO for a really long time, is in almost every case on something good, this doesn't work. So I come up with like my my blue widget. I want to make a blue widget and I, you know, I'm better. I'm going to have better links. I'm going to do all that. And this is how much traffic I'm going to generate from it. I'm going to be ranked number one. You're not, right? Most In most cases, you predict that you're going to do it, but you don't because search is organic. There's lots of rules that go into who's going to rank for what. Just because you think you reverse engineered it doesn't mean you actually did it. So those are my big two problems with the way a lot of people do SEO. It's like throwing a lot of things at the wall and then you get a bunch of traffic. It's not sustainable. Instead, I like to think about, again, what I call product-led SEO. You're creating an actual tangible product for the search user. You referenced uh, the example I used in my book around the the, um, the medical site. I'd rather talk about something which everyone can understand even if they haven't yeah, read my book. Absolutely. Of course, you read my book. But Zillow is a great example. Zillow built a product that can only be arrived at by the search user or initially could only be arrived at by the search user. So any user in the world that's look or sorry in America that's looking for the valuation of their or their neighbor's home or whatever home. I, sometimes I drive down the street, look at a big house, and I Google it, see how much it's worth. But anybody that's looking for that kind of thing, you're not going to do paid for that. Social would be nearly impossible. You'd have to pinpoint someone's geo target and figure out how to show them that particular house. The best way to arrive at that is organic. So they built something for the organic user who's looking for the value of a home. That's the search asset. That's the product. So I like to think about any business that can do the exact same thing. What is the product that you're creating for that search user? Is it a video library? Is it a library of content? Is it a simple glossary? There's always something. And then now bringing that into Blue Ocean SEO, some people call, some people think of Blue Ocean SEO as as zero search volume keywords. Blue Ocean SEO is so much bigger than that. A zero search volume keyword is a single keyword or a single single topic. Blue Ocean is really doing exactly what Zillow did and saying, you know, the way Zillow monetized and they still monetize is with mortgage and real estate leads and tangential products. So when Zillow started, they could have said, oh, the top keyword in our space is mortgage and mortgage loan and refi and all that. So what we're going to do is we're going to have better content. Instead, what Zillow said is, why do people want to get a refinance? Why do people need to get a mortgage? They need to understand, they need to buy a house. 
What's the best way to buy a house? Understand what it's worth. So they built a product for that search user, which then funnels all those people into the core product. So that's really deeply understanding that core search user and really understanding that product. Now, Zillow could have done a zero search volume keyword. Those have always existed. They could have said, well, it's mortgage refi for military. Mortgage refi for senior citizens. Like those might be zero search volume keywords and they could have just created content around that. But instead they created a blue ocean which is uh, just, to de- I didn't invent the term blue ocean. It's, it's based on a book, Blue Ocean Strategies, which uh, defines a red ocean as a place that's highly competitive. So you're uh, a food delivery service or you're a food truck and everyone else is a food truck. So you need to be different by having different food or better prices or better mm-hmm. location, but essentially you're just a food truck. Or you could upend that entire model and be something completely different and not be a food truck. You could be a delivery service, which let's say when those came out, that didn't exist. So that's a blue ocean. So that's, this book talks about it. It's written by professors. It's sort of dry. I adapted this towards SEO, which is everyone else that's going after mortgage is building content around mortgage loans. Instead, you're going to build content around the values of houses. They started that over a decade ago, and they still dominate. And, and I think in every space you could potentially be in, there's an opportunity for blue ocean SEO. Even better than that, Every blue ocean SEO then becomes a red ocean. So lots of people try to do the Zillow thing, which then creates further opportunities for blue ocean. So it's endless because as users get trained on this concept of I can find this on search, then there becomes other things that they want to find in the search. And that's why I think search will never die. And that's why I think TikTok will never overtake search because, well, unless TikTok does specific search, but videos is, you know, just finding videos and getting educated passively by videos, I don't think will ever take search because. This is the best way of, oh, I really want to find something. And Google's not building content around that. They're just indexing content towards what people are looking for. So there's always a blue ocean. And there's always an opportunity to create a product around this blue ocean, provided that there is a search market. So there isn't, search isn't always a fit. Two-thirds of the conversations I take with potential clients, I tell them not to do search. I tell them to just do paid. So B2B, I don't think there's a huge market in B2B for search because it's not part of the typical behavior for a business to say, well, I need a new uh, cloud provider of security. I'm going to use search and, oh, you're ranked number one. I'm buying you. It's really, they're going to go to trade shows. They're going to fill out leads. They're going to answer inbound calls. They're going to answer inbound emails. That's how they discover Mm -hmm. that. The other place there isn't any search is if something's too innovative. So if you have a a new innovation on um, transportation, for example, now you have a flying car and you think you're going to create search volume around how much gas do I need to fly from point A to point B? Yes, maybe people will search that. Maybe you'd rank number one, but nobody looks for that because nobody knows that you can fly from point A. So you really need to have the demand already created. This established established uh, market. Established demand. And then we're not talking zero search volume keyword. We're talking like people have to care about this. So if there's a fit for SEO and there's a search market, I think there's an opportunity to create product-led SEO. The best product-led SEO is scalable like Zillow, where you can scale to every house and programmatic. So you're not really writing manual content, but there's always a product. It might be a hundred pages. It might be a million pages, it might be 10 million pages, but really you want to think about what's the product I'm creating for users and not one-off pieces of content. Because if you do one-off pieces of content, all you're doing is writing content. Right. So the programmatic is is a, a schematic that you're setting up and it's all based on data, right? Uh, we're, we're going back to the data set. Uh, so it's all as good as the data that you get. So a program is so no, no, programmatic. You could still be writing content. Okay. I'd say like, 
if you were to compete with um NerdWallet's a great example. NerdWallet right. creates an insane amount of content, which is not scalable and not programmatic. However, their programmatic content still wins the day in many cases. So if you want to know what is the top credit card for cash back, that's actually a programmatic page. They take the data around each credit card, they merge it together, and they have a little bit of content around it. That's a programmatic page. They probably also have a super long blog post about like what's the best credit card of 2022 that is, you know, cash back and all that. But I'd say like it's very easy for them to rank on just that programmatic page. The same goes for uh, if you're in the medical space. So you might need a really detailed blog post about like, you know, this is how you should exercise and care for your body. But you could also just aggregate symptoms for like, how do you know if you're having a heart attack? That's a programmatic page. So, so based on a data set, but the more you merge different data sets in, the more unique your page becomes. Zillow, again, is a great example of that. Zillow pulled in multiple government sources. Again, the stuff was all available. They paid for it in some way or another, but they pulled in multiple government sources to then create that programmatic page. So they didn't take, you know, one, two, three Main Street and write a piece of content on it and say, this is a house on one, two, three Main Street. It's made out of stucco. It's this. They pulled in the tax data to know what the house is, like how many square feet it is. They pulled in the school from another database. They pulled in the pictures from the realty database. Like they built this whole page out of different pages pulled together and they created a unique asset. So I think, again, if you're creating a product, there's always opportunities to do that. Just think about all the government data that's locked up. Think about all the, the university data that's locked up. Think about, I mean, GoodRx is a great example of this. They built so much drug data and then they link in all the pricing data. Like there's so many different spaces you could do this yep. where if you envision the product, now you're pulling in data that's useful to the user. Yeah, not only is it useful, but uh, it's it's quality content, right? And um, so I'm going to kind of pivot this over into your one of your chapters, uh, I think it was the tactical SEO chapter, you talked about quality signals and contextual relevance. Um, and I think that how this is being built, uh, this is really giving a lot more information, even though it is programmatic that the way it's built. Um, and especially with uh, Eat being, uh, the Google Eat algorithm being updated recently to include exp- experience. Um, you know, th- this is pretty, pretty fantastic. The the whole strategy of how you're, you're, you're basing this. Um, do you have any comments on that or, or can you add to um, how this product led um, strategy actually lends towards more um, relevant content? So I don't know that it's even the concept of relevant content. It's so targeted to things. If you do this right, it's so targeted for an exact user. You know your user. Uh, I'll give you an example from, again, a company I was talking to recently. They sell something that is targeted specifically at fitness enthusiasts, but they're writing generic content from keywords. They're using keyword planner and, and Ahrefs and SEMrush. Right. But they can only sell to that fitness enthusiast. They only want to sell to the fitness enthusiast. And their product is very expensive. And they're measuring themselves by rankings and like, oh, well, we're doing well. And like, you're not doing well if you're not converting. On converting, yeah. yeah. Specifically for that audience. So that's it's not that you need to be relevant. You can be relevant if you sell that product. Everyone that searches you are relevant. Right. But that's useful. What you really need to target is understanding the funnel and targeting the content that's the exact fit for your audience. 
And it goes back to how we started the podcast, which is you need to understand your audience. So in their case, in this company's case, they at least knew it was a fitness enthusiast, but I recommended that they really drill into like what prompts the fitness enthusiast to want to even search for this kind of thing. What brings that fitness enthusiast down that funnel and buys it once they arrive at the page, because that's how they can drive more conversions and SEO pays off for them. Now, suppose that fitness enthusiasts did not use search, then they shouldn't be doing SEO. Yes, their rankings, yes, there's, you know, the results are there, but it's not a conversion channel if those people aren't there. They happen to be there, so they just need to figure out how to capture that. So I don't think we really need to focus on relevance. You focus on your audience. And going back to eat, I think eat is very, very overplayed within search. Okay. You can have the lowest on paper eat signals, but still be the most relevant for your audience because you are the brand, you're an authority. So I think throw out all these concepts behind eat and just focus on building a brand. And when you focus on building a brand, that means do you get, do people in your industry, do people in your audience recognize you as a brand? That means you're getting mentions, not even links, right? Google can see mentions. We don't know how any of these things factor, but they see that the words are like, oh, um, you know, Kleenex is mentioned in this article. So everyone's mentioning Kleenex. It doesn't matter where they link to Kleenex.com. Kleenex has a brand. So like they can see that kind of thing. Obviously, they're reading the content. So you want to be a brand and that's eat, right? So instead of thinking about these, oh, I'm going to tweak, I'm going to get a better profile picture of me, you know, with a headshot instead of me in a bar because it improves my eat score. Well, you could be in a bar if your brand is is your in a bar, if you're a brand, right? right? So it's, it's really about being the brand and not worrying about the specific metrics of what might go into an eat score. So a part of the book, actually a lot of the book you are talking about, you know, just giving Google's users what you Google wants. And, and that's really has always been the case that Google wants to give the users the best experience. So it sounds like you're tying all this stuff back just to the users to give the users not only their intent of what they want, but the best experience and that that will win uh, the day. Yes. So ultimately, uh, you know, again, with all this stuff happening about chat GPT and G- and AI in general, mm-hmm. Google's an AI company. Google's right. absolutely been an AI company. So we can't, you know, talk to the Google assistant the same way you can talk to chat GPT, but it's there. It's under the hood. You know, I, I live in the Bay area where five times a day, I see a self-driving car made by Google, by Waymo. That the AI that goes into that if you're a conspiracy theorist, then you know there's a driver holding the steering wheel. If you're a conspiracy theorist, you're like they're faking it. They're really not driving. I don't think so. Google has driven more miles self autonomously than mm-hmm. anybody else, more than than actual car companies that have been doing this for a long time. So they are making AI decisions. They're very very complicated AI decisions. Like if you're uh, you know think about this from the computer standpoint, if you see a like a an object flying through the air. How do you know whether that's a ball that's like going to continue on the trajectory or that's a bird that just can go any different direction? If you see a car going really slow in front of you, how do you know whether that person is texting temporarily going slow or whether that person is uh, slow and then you change lanes? So I love watching these cars change lanes and make left turns and right turns and stop at stop signs, do all these things. That's crazy AI. So if you find a temporary hack in Google, great. Take advantage of it. Sells much Viagra or you know phishing and Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. you want. But if you're trying to build a sustainable business based on hacks, and you're not really satisfying the user, 
you can bet that in a very short amount of time, the AI will catch up. And it's a continuous machine learning algorithm, which means that when people talk about engagement scores, I don't know that Google can really factor in engagement on a specific result on a specific website. There's probably not enough scientific data there. But on a global scale, if everyone lands on your website and immediately bounces, that will factor in because it's a sure. continuous algorithm. And it trains the algorithm, which is the best part about the way all of this works is that everyone's always looking for like Gary Illich or, or John Mueller to like leak a Google secret. I don't think anyone understands the Google algorithm anymore because it's trained itself. Mm -hmm. So the way something might work in the healthcare space is not at all going to work in e-commerce because it trained itself. The way something works around Valentine's Day is not going to work around Christmas because it trained itself and it's continuously training itself. That's the AI. So if you're trying to beat the algorithm by beating something you found in the algorithm, like some hack, the AI is training against you because it's using users to train itself rather than the algorithm and best practices. And like every time Google updates the best practices, to me, these are just things that you should know to begin with right. and focus on your users. And, and I think eventually you will win if you don't win right now. The other thing that I think is really important to call out in this on this topic is that the majority of websites, I, I don't know, I, if I'd had to hazard a guess, it'd probably be like 80 to 90% of websites in the world do not do SEO. They don't know how to do SEO. They don't know what exists. Think about like the tax authorities in most countries. Think about the parliaments. Think about the healthcare, like the CDC, their SEO is not good, but it's good enough that we can find the CDC. So they're not doing SEO. So Google's algorithms have to account for, hey, this is a, a government website, but it's not a .gov, but it is the official source. This is the, um, you know, the city's website. It's not a .gov, but this is the official source for that city. We need to make sure that comes up number one for knowing when the garbage is going to get picked up. Right. So Google algorithms are accounting for so many things that don't include SEO because they don't know how to put SEO in there. When you do SEO, so now you can actually make sure that those corner cases don't work against you. But I don't think that if you neglect some things that it's fine, like... I, I mean, whenever I play on my own personal websites, I never do redirects. I just want to see when Google will pick them up because it's fine, right? Like if I don't rank, I don't rank. I'll still get the traffic. They'll still find my website. They'll still get to me. Now, if it's a page is driving a significant amount of revenue and I don't want to find out what happens if I'm wrong and I don't want to, you know, month long hiccup, then I'll redirect it. But in general, Google figures these things out when, you know, the parliament of a country does a redesign and picks up a new CMS and no one ever tells them they need to, need to do a redirect, Google needs to figure it out fairly quickly. So their algorithms account for that. So when, when it comes to all of these things, that's my view in that AI, the machine learning and the algorithm is mimicking humans. And it's, it's not perfect. It's far from perfect. There's so many holes in it, but don't focus on the holes, focus on the user. No, I love it. I love it. And uh, I, I think uh, I've been doing SEO for almost 13 years now. And I think the first two years I was trying to get around Google. And then I threw up my hands and I said, I don't care about getting around Google. I just want to give Google what Google wants. What is that? You know, and so uh, I think a lot of SEOs could be better served by understanding what that is. And that is actually a better experience for the Google's users. That's that's so what if you're doing SEO for 13 years, then you experienced the Panda algorithm, which yes, is I, where yeah. I learned a ton. And I'd say it's probably been since Panda, the first one or two runs of Panda and the first run or two of Penguin, 
in the, which is a really long time since Google did a fundamental algorithm shift that removed websites from the internet in a way that most people can tell. Since then, it's a continuous improvement process. So the same way, and I use this example in my book, you have a cell phone and you know, for Android, they update it once a month, but there's constant little improvements in the iOS, they update, you know, frequently. Mm-hmm. There's little improvements, but they're not algorithm updates. They're just like, they patch bugs. So when they say, Google says we do hundreds of algorithm updates a year or thousands of algorithm updates a year, that's what they're doing. They're just like, oh, that's didn't work as planned. Just going to fix that code or remove that code. Now, even when they do a fundamental shift, we don't really notice it because the algorithm is continuously improved. I think when, it, when Panda came out, the algorithms weren't good enough to be like, wow, all these people are spamming all this content mm-hmm. and the algorithm just doesn't know how to get rid of it. So we're going to apply a specific rule and they got it wrong, right? They, I think it, it impacted like 20% of the web. They got it wrong and it removed a bunch of websites that shouldn't have been removed. So they updated it. And finally they figured it out like, okay, we found the exact fingerprint of really spammy, crappy content. We're good, right? And then they can continue to improve that. They didn't need to shift the whole web. And also they scared so many websites that like, this is not the way you're going to do things. They yeah. were specifically chasing demand media and the first run of it did not hurt demand media. But the second time they nailed demand media and you don't like see that, like how stuff works. Like what's the website? Ehow. That's what it was. Ehow, Re- yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Yep. You don't see that stuff anymore. Right. So like they nailed it and you know, you're not, no one's going to build an Ehow right now. So I, I'd say like, it's been a really long time. Easy in articles, all that stuff. Yeah, all that stuff was gone, right? So yeah. now, like Google did their helpful content update. I think it would have been cool if they would have like knocked out all this content. But you don't really see like a fundamental shift to the web where you have articles in the Wall Street Journal and New York Times and CNN about like billions of dollars have just shifted between companies because Google updated the algorithm. Like it's a footnote. Mm-hmm. Every time they update the algorithm, certainly sites get removed and like it impacted twelve percent of searches. There was a company I consulted for where they have billions of pages. Their UGC site. And every time the algo updated, they lost crazy amounts of traffic, but they also, their revenue grew because their, their better pages started surfacing better because their better pages were competing against people that were spammier than them. But their spammy pages got removed from the index. So I think, you know, for the most part, I mean, a lot of what you see on, on Twitter and on LinkedIn, these are good SEOs doing good work. They don't really see themselves getting penalized. It's the bad SEOs. It's the blackhead SEOs. Right. There's the super dirty ones, I don't hang out there, but I assume that's who's getting nailed. But they're always getting nailed. Just sometimes Google needs to do a big update. So mm-hmm. you probably remember those days like Panda and Penguin where like there was like a lot of people on social media being like, oh, my God, our business is done. But I, I don't think you see that at scale that much anymore. Yeah, I, I can remember uh, working for a specific lawyer who was doing exact match domains. So when the, the EMD uh, update came, which was amongst all that. Right. Um, you know, he, he lost most of his rankings. So, uh, but you know, part of being an SEO and part of working for other businesses is they have specific processes of what they're doing and you're being told sometimes how you are to do business. Right. So it's really aligning yourself with the right businesses, um, uh, and how you want to be known, right. What's your reputation. Um, so along that note, um, You've gone. You've experienced a lot of these changes. You've been in marketing for a long time. You've built your business uh, as well as worked for other companies. Like, what have been the aha moments for you? Like, what has, um, what have been the major shifts or the breakthrough moments for you? So going back to the Panda algorithm, that was a big one for me. So prior to Panda, 
I was a spam yes, yeah. I mean, I had a I had a bunch of I had a budget to like buy links, created all sorts of duplicate content. I built my own super spammy sites, generate a lot of affiliate revenue. <laughs> I actually had a site where I was ranking on Sarah Palin when Sarah Palin ran in 2008. Yeah, uh, I was I was ranking on her name. I still have the site, but she lost her congressional run. So that website will continue costing me $12 a year till she tries to run again. And I'll do something. <laughs> that... uh, I was ranking on that, bought a bunch of links for it, even got real links. I was ranking for contact Sarah Palin, got all sorts of hate mail. So did, did all the spammy, dirty SEO. Panda was what taught me that that wasn't the way to go because the company I was working for, we lost 65% of our traffic that one morning. Mm -hmm. And we were a venture funded company and everyone was like, wow, we built our entire company on quicksand. Like we came up with an algo hack, we had duplicate content all over the place, bought links all over the place, and we lost it because we didn't deserve it. So that was a fundamental shift for me and really how to think about SEO properly. We're building for users. These hacks aren't good. They're not good for users. They may work temporarily, but if like you can't talk about them at a conference publicly, then they're probably going to destroy you when they get caught. Yeah, that was yeah, absolutely the, the second aha moment for me was when I went to SurveyMonkey, and you know I wrote about this in the beginning of my book. I knew all my SEO best practices. Like I was trained by Panda. Essentially, I learned how to do SEO properly because it got lost all. We got all the traffic back, and I get into the SurveyMonkey. I went from a twenty-person startup to you know hundred-something person real company raised real money. And I had all my SEO best practices and engineers just said, no, we're not going to do that. Yeah. And to me, it was about, well, I need to win. I need to do what I had to do, what I was hired to do. It was about learning all those soft skills, about how to think of SEO as a product, how to not accept the best practices, but accept the second best practice. And over the long term, I built a business with them that generated two thirds of global revenue, a couple hundred million dollars a year from SEO. But that started with like, not putting my foot down saying you must 301 redirect it. It really came down to, well, I, you're not going to do this right now, but I'm going to earn political capital by doing this other thing. And I think soft skills are so much more important. It's why I called my book product with SEO. I think that SEO needs to think about it being a product. I think SEO needs to think about being a part of the big picture. We're so much more valuable than anyone really thinks. You know, if you look at Google's revenue, they generate $200 billion per year from ads. Mm -hmm. Whatever the click-through rate is on ads, whether you want to say that's 10%, whether you want to say it's 20%, conservatively, let's say the click-through rate on ads is 20%, five times that number is going to organic at a minimum, right, of all the clicks. So if $200 billion goes in ads and the value of $200 billion is whatever, we're talking trillions of potential dollars are in organic, but yet SEO sits in the corner, Men reporting to like a, you know, a marketing a marketing manager reports to the director, reports to the senior director. Yet we're commanding all this and just not articulating enough. So, so those so are the yeah, I'm going to tie right into that. So one of the parts of your book, which uh, I totally can relate to, was uh, last touch attribution, right? And actually um, having an attribution, or if you don't have that last touch attribution, at least going down to a conversion of a form completion or whatever it is. Right. What is that completion and being able to show those KPIs up towards management, whether it's quarter over quarter or year over year and year end, whatever it might be. Um, really critical. But if you don't, but if you don't, and those are great, but if you don't have the buyer's journey down and the right content associated with the buyer's journey, 
you might not have, you know, you have conversions, but it they may not be relevant conversions. So I, I love where where you're going with uh, from the beginning of really about, you know, where are they in the journey? Where's the intent? I cannot tell you how many times I've been given keywords as the focus keywords from some marketing manager, and uh, I go to check on the intent and our direct competitors, nobody's there. It's something completely different. I'm like, no, you need to change what you're doing. <laughs> it needs to be refocused to towards where there actually is search volume. And my my struggle as an SEO has always been, there's always been a direction from the business. Uh, they don't want to go with a product-led approach. They want to go with a keyword approach. So that is a struggle. I think that a lot of SEOs are going to, and a lot of education uh, leading up. But one of the things you just touched on, and I'm going to pivot, um, uh, what which I loved in your book, what you talked about quality links through PR and how that's going to be the, the way to go moving forward. Um, and if you could touch on that, that'd be great. I, I love that. It goes back to my my earlier point on, on brand building. Right. So if you've... Uh, can we admit on this podcast that we've all bought some links and done some guest posting? But if you've ever looked at one of those reports that have come from those agencies and you look at them and it says, here's a DA80 link. And then you go to the right. website, it's like digital news in Australia today.com. It's got a DA80. It's got a really nice homepage. And you start scrolling through it and like post number one is like some crypto thing. Post number two is pet insurance. Post number three is about a funeral mm-hmm. home. Like, this is this is disgusting. This website exists just for SEO. Or if you see the expired domain strategy where you go into uh, a site and you're like, oh, wow, this is like a DA60 link. And you go to it and it's like a limousine website. And I'm, this is an actual example. It's a limousine website. The reason it's DA60 is because they used to drive limousines for celebrities and they got the celebrities to endorse them and give them links. But it's a limousine website. And then like in the homepage on the footer, it like links to your your product and your brand. Right. We just talked about how Google is an AI engine. So the same way you reverse engineer this thing and you look at this and you're like, who's this limousine website has no relevance on this product I'm, I'm making. Right. And then you look at the links coming to the limousine website and you're like, all these celebrities on their websites or their whatever profiles on their MySpace profile has no relevance to limousines. So you're passing through all this, but you paid for that link because of DA80. That's useless. Instead, I, I prefer to, because again, Google's AI engine and they're really smart. Instead, I prefer to really think about links as PR. If you're buying links, you want to be in a place where those links are generating positive PR for you. So say you could buy a link from TechCrunch and that costs you thousands of dollars. We don't know whether that link passes value. Maybe TechCrunch thinks they put a no follow on it, which I don't really care about. But whatever it is, you get that link from TechCrunch. It's not that you're getting the value of the link and you think it'll improve your page. You're getting a link from TechCrunch. So now on your homepage, you can say, as mentioned to TechCrunch. In your pitch deck, you say, as as mentioned, TechCrunch. On your LinkedIn profile, cited at TechCrunch. There's a lot more value to that. Now, if Google happens to trust that link and it provides SEO value too, all the better. But I really prefer to focus on PR because you're getting the most bang for your buck. And I also think, again, we're going back to eat and building a brand. That's what brands do. 
Google's looking for these kinds of signals. So focus on brand. Some of those links will count. Many of those links will count. But if you focus on just backlinks and just domain authority, mm-hmm. I think most of them won't count. And the algorithm's there to hunt that. You know, didn't Semrush launch a new tool recently where they can help you identify these PBNs and help you identify the link graph and who links to who? Semrush did it. Semrush is not Google. Google can do the same thing. And I've had friends on the Google you know, search quality team. This is what they look at. They could see a PBN the same way you can reverse engineer a PBN by going into SEMrush and Ahrefs. They can automatically do that thing. So that's why, again, I, I don't think buying links in 2022, 2023 matters. I really think focusing on PR and building really good, a really good brand and really good way of people talking about you will translate into SEO more than anything else you can do. And by the yeah. way, just from a link perspective, it. I've seen websites rank without any links at all. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, no, I, I love it. I love it. Um, so um, just uh, do you have any more breakthrough moments that you wanted to share? Probably the, the biggest breakthrough moment I've had in the last couple of years was when my book came out and so many people emailed me and told me that they had the exact same problem. Because I, I figured as much, but I had no way of like finding that out. And it's just amazing to know there's so many people, like like you just said, banging their heads against the wall, wanting to do something product-led, wanting to do something not spammy. And their boss and their clients are just like, no, 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 focus on the keyword. So like, I love that the industry is shifting and going in towards building product and building quality something for users. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um it's it's hard, especially on in enterprise businesses, right? Because their products are already built, right? They have product specialists, and so if you're in the enterprise sector or even a mid-sized business, they already have a direction where they're going. And what I see with this product-led uh, strategy is that the if you're letting the the users telling you what they need, the strategy for the whole business might shift, right? Um, based upon what that is and then how you monetize around that. Um, so I think the business has to be open to that. And if they're not open, if they are in, if it's very siloed, a very siloed business, um, I think that's hard. I think this is going to be a much easier strategy for smaller businesses to take, to understand that they can be uh, nimble in how they change. Um, but then they can own the market and then they can compete with larger businesses because they've built all this content out. So. I wouldn't give up if you're in a larger business. The potential and opportunity is so much bigger in a larger business. It just thread the needle tighter. And yeah, I think you'll win. Yep. 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 No, I, I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up. But uh the uh it's it's just more, more bureaucracy in larger enterprise businesses for sure. Yeah. Well, this has been fantastic. Uh I think there uh there is a huge amount. Uh we're gonna absolutely link to the book. Uh did you have any uh, any other products or promos or anything you wanted to talk about? I've got a few things. So my personal website is elishwartz.co. But um, in keeping with my theme of Google figures things out, you could just search Eli Schwartz. You'll probably find me. If you don't, you can find me on LinkedIn, which will likely be ranking. And then I have a podcast with Kevin Indig, Contrarian Marketing Podcast, which everyone should check out. Hopefully by the time this airs, well, a bunch of episodes worth listening to. And I've just launched a job board. So for the last couple of years, I've been super passionate about like helping SEOs level up and other marketers level up and find other jobs. It's with a company called Palette. 
there is a way for employers to pay to have a featured job, but I'm not doing that right now because I don't have that many employers. So completely free. I'm still doing the manual curation. Just I have this job board now. Um, I'll give you the link for the show notes where I'm not doing this in Google Sheets. And I had to hire like a VA to help me do the matching. So this should be a lot easier. But if you're looking for a new job where you're looking to hire anybody, I have a job board, totally free. Don't monetize anything. I, I just like love helping people and seeing people level up. But apologies if I do end up monetizing in order to, and only the hiring in order to to just thin it out a little bit so I don't have that many jobs to like match people to. But I really love being here. Thank you for having me. I hope the podcast takes off and, and you know, becomes the next Joe Rogan show. Uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, our whole goal is to give tips and tricks from people's, uh, you know, entrepreneurs who are successful, you know, all the struggles they've gone through and, you know, give those insights so people can not necessarily have to go through all those issues themselves. So um, this has been amazing. Uh, I love the book. Uh, it's definitely worth reading a second time. So thank you so much for writing it and looking forward to the next book. So Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Fantastic. Are you ready to break through to accelerate online business growth? Then join our email list at emjpodcast.com so we can keep you up to date with the latest strategies, tips, and tricks that you'll want to know. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. This is the EMJ Podcast with Matt Hepburn, and we'll see you next time.